Let me give you a little historical context. We're really coming to the end of the book of Revelation. We have this week and uh, next week. The last two chapters of Scripture really reveal the consummation of human history from Genesis to Revelation. So, so far in Revelation, we've been through God repossessing his planet through the means of great judgments, the great tribulation, the three seal judgments, three trumpet judgments, three bowl judgments. At the same time, he's also redeemed millions and millions of people. During the same period of time, Jesus has come the second time, returned to earth, conquered his enemies. We've been through the campaign of Armageddon, where we had that conflict in the land of Israel. Uh, Jesus has imprisoned Satan in the abyss, uh, established his messianic kingdom for a thousand years. Last chapter, uh, chapter 20, we went through that messianic kingdom. And at the conclusion of that period of time, we have millions and millions of humans rebelling. We have the final conflicts there destroyed. Satan and his demons are, are thrown into the lake of fire. And last week we talked about the destruction of the known universe. This current universe, by the way, is disposable. For those of you that like disposable things, the universe you're living in is very disposable. If you think the, um, we're worried about humans destroying the planet, never fear. God has a plan to take care of this planet and he's, he's going to disappear it. And we're going to talk about its replacement today, the new heavens and the new earth. We looked at the great white throne judgment where those who have chosen to spend eternity apart with God, God respects their choice and uh, throws them in the lake of fire. And so today we're going to view the new heaven and the new earth that God has created sinless and perfect. And really these last two chapters tell us the bulk of what we know about the eternal state. After the messianic kingdom, after the millennial reign, what is the eternal state? Now just by way of Contrast, most of you know this, heaven today is extraordinarily underrated by our modern culture, especially in, in affluent cultures. Affluent cultures generally fool us into thinking that we can manufacture heaven on earth. I mean, if you just get the right chip and the right biotech and the right medical uh, uh, miracle, we can uh, have heaven here on earth. But one of the ways that God prepares us for heaven is he lets us get old. Right? He lets you age, and as your body creaks and groans, it reminds you that no, heaven is not on earth, and no matter how much medical tech you can import into your body, you're still going to die. And that's God's way of letting us know that the future is coming and we're not going to stay here. Everyone likes to live in a perfect place called heaven, but most people, most people would actually hate heaven if they got there. Most people. You see, in heaven, God is in charge, not you, right? God is to be worshipped. Yes, shocking, just shocking that the Lord would be in charge. God is the focus, not self. That bothers most people in contemporary culture. In heaven, God doesn't allow any sinful behavior. People that love their sin will hate heaven. Jesus told us that's most people. The way is broad that leads to destruction, Amen. The road is narrow that leads to life. Sinful mankind refuses to bow the knee to Almighty God. It's hard to believe, but most people on the planet today would rather sing, I did it my way in hell, than sing, thy will be done in heaven. Right? We know that. It's tragic. We found out the consequences of the last week. God honors people's choices, and if people choose to rebel and really say at the end of the day, I don't want to spend eternity with you, God. I would rather spend eternity apart from you. The Lord honors that wish and says, thy will be done. Apart from God, by the way, is the lake of fire. That's their call. 
Now, Satan has done his best to discredit heaven and deceive people into thinking that today is all you've got. Satan, dece Satan deceives people into believing in reincarnation. You know, that's recycling the soul. You can't get it right the first time. Do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again. Try wash, try, you know, something in the dryer to make it work next time you go round and round and round. The problem is that doesn't solve the problem of sin. He also discredits heaven by preaching annihilation. You can sin as much as you want, and then you go in the ground and push up daisies, and that all, that's all there is. Also a lie. He also discredits heaven by telling people they can earn it through good works. If you only work hard enough, that's the ultimate treadmill, right? More is always more, always more, never enough. So Satan is going to downplay heaven. He's going to discredit heaven. He's going to keep your focus here on earth. I mean, how much do you really know about heaven? Do you know what the average person thinks you do in heaven? Sit on a cloud and strum a harp. And that's boring. It is boring. If that's all you made me do, who'd want to go there, right? So Satan will use the trinkets of this life to distract us from the treasures in heaven. Mark Twain once said, you take heaven. I'd rather go to Bermuda. Now, I've never been to Bermuda. I've never been to heaven either. But I assure you, Bermuda is not superior to heaven. Now, Mark Twain, of course, was not a man of faith. He died very bitter, very disillusioned. His last book, The Mysterious Stranger, I mean, he was a pretty bitter, disillusioned guy. John Lennon, as a solo artist, his best-known tune was called what? Imagine, right? And he, the opening title of that is Imagine There's No Heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Now, in contrast to John Lennon, the Apostle John says, you don't have to imagine heaven. Heaven is real because I've been there. I'm an eyewitness, I've seen it, and I wrote it down. And that's what we're going to talk about today. See, we believe this present world is permanent because it's all we know. We've lived here our whole life at that point in time. The problem is no one gets to stay, right? How much time do you get on planet? Five, six, seven, eight, nine decades. The last decade's generally not too pleasant, but the reality is everyone has a departure date, right? Amen. Everyone's got a departure date. When you enter a foreign country with your passport, one of the things they always ask you is, how long are you planning on staying? And you don't get to say indefinitely. I mean, they want to know kind of when's the departure date because we're going to check you out of here in two weeks if you're on vacation or whatever it happens to be. Now, when you were born, you get a spiritual passport as well as a physical birth certificate. And everybody knows their date of entry into this country called planet Earth, right? That's your birth date. What you don't know on your passport is your departure date. But God does. Psalm 139 says, the number of days of our life are all laid out. So we have a date of departure. Kind of interesting that life is like a camping trip. How many of you have ever been camping? Now, camping is temporary, right? I mean, it's okay for a little while to live in a tent, but I don't know many people who want to live in a tent for the rest of their life. You know, especially dry camping. No showers. That could get really brutal after a week or two, right? So our life on earth is kind of like a week in the camping trip. It doesn't last very long, 
And one of the reasons God tells us about heaven is he wants to give us a perspective on the very short temporary time we have here. Let me ask you a question. If you knew something was inevitable and you knew it in advance and you could prepare for it because you knew it was inevitable, would it be wise to prepare for it in advance? Just your rule of thumb, right? I mean, it'd probably be wise to prepare for it in advance. So God tells us about heaven in Revelation 21, 22, because we have time now to prepare for it, to be ready for it, to get our house in order. So here's the key idea. The reality of heaven should shape our behavior on earth. The fact that you know heaven is coming, the fact that you know that you can't stay here forever, the fact that you know the clock is ticking should shape our behavior here on earth. Now, heaven is mentioned 550 times in the Bible. So you can't say God doesn't talk about it, right? He mentions heaven 54 times in Revelation. The Hebrew word for heaven is shavayim, shavayim, and it means the heights. It literally translates in Hebrew to mean the heights. The word for heaven in the New Testament is Aranos, where we get, we get our name for the planet Uranus. And it literally means that which is elevated, that which is raised up, that which is uh, uh, lifted up. So we know something about heaven. We know that heaven is up. Yes? Heaven is not down. We know that heaven's up. Revelation 4, 1, John, God told John, he said, John, come up here. I'm going to show you heaven in Revelation 4, 1. When Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, did he ascend or descend? Uh, now, ascended means you're going what direction? You're going up, right? We know that, so we know it's elevated. It says in 2 Corinthians 12 that Paul was caught up into the third heaven. So we know that heaven is up. Interestingly enough, the Bible refers to three heavens. Three heavens in Scripture. The first heaven is the one we go out into every day. It's the atmospheric heaven. It's the vapor canopy around the planet. We breathe it every day. We call it air, right? That's the first heaven. The second heaven is the stratospheric heaven. That's the interstellar heaven. That's where all the planets are. That's where galaxies are. That's where stars are. Interstellar heaven is pretty vast. It's to create a universe. Now, the third heaven where Paul was is the dwelling place of God. God lives in the third heaven. We also know that heaven is not eternal. Heaven was created, yes? And you say, okay, Brad, what you're telling me is at some point in time, God didn't dwell in heaven. That would be correct. Because we know that only God is eternal. Everything else was created. Genesis 1-1 says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we know that the dwelling place of God was your created item. Now, we also know that heaven is a place it is not just, a, it's not a state of mind. It has a specific location. John 14, you already know this, John 14, 2 and 3. Jesus says, I want you to listen to how Jesus identifies location here. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So he's talking about a location. He's talking about a specific place. He mentions heaven as a place three different times. You get the impression that it's a specific place. 
Now, Acts 7 tells us that Stephen, remember when Stephen, in Acts 7, his great sermon, they were going to stone him to death, and they were stoning him to death with rocks, and it says he looked up into heaven, into heaven, and he saw Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God the Father. Also notice that Jesus, when he was resurrected, had a physical body, a glorified body, a resurrected body, but nonetheless, it was a physical body. Now, you and I are headed for an upgrade. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us you're going to get a new body. And when you look in the mirror, especially when you first wake up, you realize the necessity of that. The, even, you know, even after um, some help, a shower and some cosmetics. By the way, cosmetics means to put in order, right? It really does, the word cosmetics, it comes from order. Kind of puts your face in order. You know, uh, ladies, you know why guys don't use cosmetics? It wouldn't help. <laughs> it, it, you know, count yourself blessed, ladies. You can actually make a difference with cosmetics. You can put in order and it looks good. Guys, it, it's not going to help. You know, so I just, that was for free, Rob. So we know heaven is a physical location. Jesus lives in heaven. Heaven is multiple dimensions, by the way, far more than three. But it includes the physical dimensions because Jesus has a physical body. It has multiple dimensions, but he lives in a specific place. Now, angels are created beings, and they live in heaven, and it's their residence. Now, heaven is also your future home. It's where you're going to spend eternity because you're not going to spend it here. Let me give you an illustration. If, how many of you have traveled? You've traveled out of the country. Me travel all the country? Let's assume that you're going to travel out of the country, but this is not a round trip. This is a one-way trip. You're going to leave the U.S., you're going to immigrate to a foreign country, and you're never coming back. This is one way, right? And this new country is going to be your permanent home. Wouldn't it make sense to find out as much as you could about that new country before you left so you could prepare? I mean, you would want to know their language, their laws, their culture, their cuisine, the people, the food, the weather, the climate, uh, how the country's governed. I mean, this is your new permanent home. You're going to live forever in this location. Now, heaven is what? Your permanent home. And you're never coming back here. And your departure date is not certain. So Jesus gave us a fair amount here on heaven to say, folks, spend some time getting to know where you're going so you're going to be ready for it. Verse 1. John says, then I saw, that means a new vision, a new heaven, and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. Now, not only are you temporary, the entire universe is temporary. It's disposable. It has an expiration gate. We found out last week that God destroyed the entire current universe because it's toxic. It's toxic with sin. And God is not going to tolerate sin. So he created a new heavens and a new earth here. Brand new. Now the word new here is kainos. And it means new and different in terms of quality and new and different in terms of freshness. So it's literally a brand new, fresh universe, different in quality from the old. The new universe that God creates will have no memory of sin, no trace of sin. You know, uh, we have toxic substances, and if there's, if there's so many parts per million, it can kill you, you know? Or even some parts, parts per billion, and it can kill you. 
If you have ever worked with agricultural pesticides, I, uh, I uh, have a 25 gallon sprayer at home and uh, I really hate weeds. I mean, I hate weeds, but I hate to hoe them because I grew up hoeing. So when, when, when they invented, you know, really good herbicides, I, I'm a happy camper. So when I mix stuff up to kill weeds, I want them to die right then. I want to spray them and I want to watch them die <laughs> right there. I don't want to wait. So when I spray stuff, it's hot. It's really hot because it's not, I don't count on one part per million killing anything, man. It's one to one. You know, it's, I, I don't dilute it very much. You know, these, these weeds are going to die. So sin in the universe is so toxic that it can be one part over infinity and it's still toxic. So God has destroyed the entire current universe since it is so tainted and so corrupted with sin. So he's, this new universe is going to be completely pure. And the only clue we have about it is it's not going to have any sea. See, the current earth is dependent on the oceans to power the hydrologic cycle. We, we, we really live in a water world. Uh, for those of you that have watched Kevin Costner in that movie. Life on Earth is very water dependent. 70% of the Earth's surface is water covered and um, the seawater is salty because salt water helps purify the planet. If it was all fresh, it would be much more polluted. Your body, your blood is 90% water and our bodies are currently utterly dependent on water. So apparently our resurrected bodies will not be water dependent. It's interesting that Jesus' body has flesh and bone. He says, you know, he eats fish, but he says, don't you see this body of flesh and bone? He doesn't mention any blood in the resurrected body. So I don't know whether your new resurrected body will even have blood. We know it's going to be brand new. And we know it's significantly better than what you have now, like infinitely better. But we do know the new earth is going to contain the, the sparkling water of eternal life. We'll talk about that next week. So we've got a little bit on the first uh, new heaven and new earth coming. Verse 2 says we're going to take a look at the capital city of this new earth and the new heaven. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a, bri as a bride adorned for her husband. So this, this holy city, this new Jerusalem, is a place where God's people will live with God forever. The architect of this city, the builder of this city, is God himself. So you know that there's no corners cut in this construction job. The building code is not the state of California's. For those of you that try to mess with that, you know what I'm talking about. The building code is divine. And you know something? The craftsmanship's divine too. This new Jerusalem is the place that Jesus has gone to prepare for us. Remember he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places, many rooms. That's what he's talking about. The new Jerusalem is the work product of Jesus, and he's building our dwelling places in his father's house. Now the city, this new Jerusalem, is not all of heaven. It says the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. So our future dwelling place in the new Jerusalem is the capital city of heaven. It's actually the capital city of the universe. It descends out of heaven down to the new earth, and it's our future residence. And John describes this city as being as beautiful as a bride on her wedding day. It should be because God himself built this city to house his what? His bride, his people, the people he died for, the people he loves at that point. So if you drop down to verse 9, John's going to get a, a brief tour, if you will, of, of, of God's house, which is our new home. Verse 11 you go to verse 11, it says, having the glory of God, and it describes the city as being brilliant, 
The light of this city is brilliant like crystal clear jasper, which was a, a stone that was translucent, brilliant light generator or reflector. Verse 12 to 13 tells us this city has a wall, a huge wall with 12 gates. There's 12 gates, three on the north, south, east, and west. And on those 12 gates are written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. By the way, we know for lots of reasons the nation of Israel is going to be saved, redeemed, and is going to be in heaven, the entire nation, uh, after the uh, tribulation period. Every gate has its own ministering angel ready to serve. Verse 14 tells us the foundation stones of the walls around the city contain the names of the 12 apostles. So we have the 12 tribes of Israel, Old Testament saints. We have the 12 tribes, or the 12 apostles, New Testament saints. Verse 16 gives us some fascinating dimensions of this city. What's it look like? It says the city is in essence a giant cube, a giant cube. And the city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod, 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. So we have 1,500 mile cube, right? Let me give you an idea of that. So it's 1,500 mile wide, 1,500 miles long, and 1,500 miles high. And we're going to live inside this giant cube. If you superimpose this cube and just put it over the United States, it would cover the area from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico, and from the Atlantic coast to Colorado. This is a city, one city. So it covers Canada, the Gulf of Mexico, Atlantic to the Colorado, and it's 1,500 miles high. Now Mount Everest is barely six. Just to give you a little flavor of how big this holy city is. You could very easily put 20 billion people in this city. And each person would have their own cube-sized space, about a third of a mile in every direction. So your house would be your dwelling place. Jesus, I'm going to pray a dwelling place for you. It's a third of a mile wide. It's a third of a mile deep. And it's a third of a mile high. The face of each one of those sides is about 75 acres. So if you wanted to have some alone time, you could really have some alone time. Now, heaven is very relational. You're going to find that out. But this is a very, very large city. Interestingly enough, this perfect cube should remind you that the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies in the temple were also equidistant measurements, 30 by 30 by 30. Perfect cubes, the dwelling place of God. Verse 17 tells us the walls of this city are 72 yards wide, about 216 feet. And verse 18 tells you the wall of the city is made out of jasper. This is a translucent stone. It reflects a lot of colors, but think jasper is primarily radiant white, but it also contains fiery red and purple. So you're going to have walls 1,500 miles high that are made out of jasper, and the color reflection here is brilliant light. And you say, okay, Brad, you've talked about walls and foundations, sons and gates. What's the city made out of itself? If you look at the... The bottom there of verse 18, it tells you the city was pure gold. But it's not typical gold. This is transparent gold. It's like clear glass. This is gold you can see through. Clearly, God goes to a lot of trouble to tell us the kind of home that he's built for us. Um, how many of you ever seen the movie Annie? Back in 82, the original Annie. 
Remember she walks into Daddy Warbucks mansion in New York and this thing is like three stories high, four stories high, and the opening is just this, like this giant mezzanine. I mean, it's a multi-storied high, and she's looking up there with her rags, and she walks into Daddy Warbucks' mansion. She can hardly believe her eyes. She's come out of this dirty, squalid orphanage, and she's gonna spend a week in Daddy Warbucks' mansion, right? This is when a billion dollars was really a billion dollars. This is in the 30s. And she sings, I used to room in a tomb where I'd sit and freeze. Get me now, holy cow. Would someone pinch me, please? And then she says about four times the chorus, I think I'm going to like it here. And the last two choruses, she says, I know I'm going to like it here, right? Well, when you get to heaven, I'm pretty sure you're going to like it there. And I'm sure that it's going to knock your socks off. But as wonderful as this city is, it's not the main event. The sumum bonum, which is Latin, means the highest good is not the city. It's the king. It's God himself. There is nothing higher, nothing greater than an intimate, eternal, face-to-face -face relationship with God himself. The whole purpose of God creating mankind was to have an eternal, infinite relationship with us. Here's the principle. Living together forever with God is the whole point of heaven. Living together forever with God is the whole point of heaven. Heaven is about relationship, and it's not primarily about relationship between people, it's primarily about relationship between Jesus and you, right? You'll have all the human relationships, by the way. Uh, there, are, there are two or three surprises in heaven, guaranteed. <clears throat> One, you will see some people that you are surprised to see. Number two, you will miss some people that you thought was surely should be there. And number three, there are many people that are going to be stunned that you actually got there. <laughs> and you'll see, you'll see each other walking down heaven's halls and you go, you, amazing, you know? And we'll say, Jesus, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all, right? Only because of that. Verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. This verse is the greatest blessing in all of Scripture. Ever since sin broke the relationship between God and man, God's whole purpose, the entire Bible, is about restoring our relationship with God. The entire Bible is about reconciling and restoring our relationship with God. With God, The whole point of Jesus paying for our sins on the cross, reconcile a relationship with God so we can live forever together in heaven. So the whole focal point of heaven is God himself. Now the psalmist Asaph understood that when he said in Psalm 73, verse 25, he said, Whom do I have in heaven but you? And I'm thinking, oh, I get that. In heaven, I really just have God. But this is the one that sticks me with a spear. And besides thee... I desire nothing on earth. Well, many of us desire many things on earth besides Jesus. That's a point of conviction. The great treasure of heaven is not the city of gold. It's our Father himself. See, the difference between a house and a home is real simple. A house is a physical structure. A home has relationships 
A home has loving relationships. That's what makes a house a home. And heaven is a home because it's filled with loving relationships. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence, talking about us and God, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, when you love somebody, you want to be with them. When you love someone, you want to be with them. If you say you love someone and you never want to spend time with them, they will probably doubt your sincerity, right? If you look at verse, um, I think I just read it, uh, three times God promises that he will live with us. Verse 3. Go to verse 3. It says, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and God himself will be among them. What's the theme? God with man together forever, right? See, one of Jesus' names is Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? Now, you see, Brad, this word tabernacle. What does tabernacle mean? Tabernacle, the, the Hebrew is skin, S-K-E-N-E. It means the place of abode. It means the place you dwell. It means the place you live. It means your home. So tabernacle is your home. The tabernacle was the meeting place between God and man. That's why the tabernacle was there, was God came down and Moses, Aaron went into the Holy of Holies and met God at that point in time. So it was a meeting place. God promised that he would spend eternity with us all the way back in Leviticus 26. He says, I will make my dwelling place among you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Now, this is the picture of God walking with humanity. Where's the first time in the Bible you see God and man walking together? Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden right? God is walking with Adam and Eve. Actually, heaven's going to be far better than the Garden of Eden because in Eden, God came down from heaven, walked in the garden with them, and then went back to heaven. Here, in the new heaven and the earth, God's not going to drop by for a visit. God won't visit earth for 33 years and then go back to heaven, right? He's going to live with us permanently. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, you're not awake. The whole point of heaven is God and man together forever. There'll be no separation. You won't have to close your eyes and pray. You'll look in his face and have a conversation just like you do with a friend. That takes my breath away. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. We'll be together because he's adopted us into his family. We're his children, right? So this is face-to-face -face fellowship between God and people. After sin separated us, God really veiled himself in blinding light so that no one could see him and otherwise they would die. But Jesus promised the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 8. Remember the Beatitude? Blessed are the pure in heart for what? They shall see God. Now the problem is we're not pure in heart. But Jesus has given us his purity and his righteousness and heaven will be completely free from sin, completely. And so we can see God face to face. 1 John 3, 2 says, we know that when Jesus appears, we will what? Be like him because we're going to see him just as he is. Just as he is now. Even the disciples, when they saw Jesus on earth, they really saw him just in human, human form, right? You know when they really saw him like he was? on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it says it was blinding light. Blinding light. Um, this just came to me. How many of you have ever seen the movie, this is, I'm aging myself, which is true, called Cocoon? 
remember Cocoon and they're on the boat and they're aliens and Brian Denny's the star and he goes like this, pulls his eye down and the brilliant light shines out. Remember that scene? And the star of the show jumps overboard. Like he can't stand to be, because this brilliant light is like, whoa, this dude is out of this world. Literally, he's an alien. He's out of this world. He jumps out of the boat. Like they're in the middle of the ocean. You know, like, I mean, it's like Peter, you know, when, 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 when they walk on the water <clears throat> and Peter is so stunned, he says, God, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. It's true. But we won't have to do that because we're made holy. We can see him face to face and we won't die. We've been made pure and we will see him just like he is. Now, verse 22 tells us, if you just drop down to 22, there's no temple in heaven. There's no temple in heaven. There's no church in heaven. There's no mosque in heaven. There's none of that. A temple houses God's presence. But in heaven, there'll be no temple because God's presence is everywhere and he's face to face with all of us at the same time. It is just amazing to me. Verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is he describing heaven. And there will be no longer any what? Death. No longer any what? Death. And what's next? There will be no longer any? Sorrow. Sorrow. No longer any? Pain. No longer any? Pain. These are just three little examples. And it says the first things have passed away. Now the first things are what we live with here. He says, I'm going to wipe away every tear. And you think, well, how does that work? Well, there'll be nothing in heaven that creates tears. There will be nothing in heaven that generates tears. Bible says, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's here. In heaven, the very memories of pain will be forgotten. And we look at this and we go, how, I mean, how do I relate to this? Because everything in this life is broken. Everything in this life has pain. Everything in this life has sorrow. By the way, there's no pain in heaven, and in hell there's only pain. Right? Here, we have pleasure and pain. I was talking to Leonard this morning, and just by the piano, and we had both commented that life can be very good even when it's very hard. And I don't know anybody, quite frankly, that doesn't have hard in their life. I don't know any of you that have no sorrow. I don't know any of you that have no ache. It's, it's part of life. And part of the joy of manna, I guess, is walking this journey together and knowing you're not the only one who's dealing with it. You're not the only one who's dealing with heartbreak and pain and suffering and tears. We're all on the journey, but Jesus is with us and that gives us hope. But in heaven, there won't be any pain and there won't be any death. Now, death was not part of God's original creation. God created Adam and Eve to live forever, but death came as a result of the curse. And the curse came as a result of sin and their disobedience. See, death and dying are so commonplace in our culture now, we really don't even know how to comprehend a universe where there's no death. We don't know how to understand it. You know, leaves fall off trees. Why? Because they're going to die, right? Flowers die in the winter. Every newspaper has an obituary column, right? Here's one for you. Hospitals never stay empty and cemeteries always fill up. Because we live in a dying, decaying, sinful planet. It's almost like 
Superman's Krypton, you know? Remember, saw the movie before the planet got destroyed. That's the kind of world we live in. And then that world will be destroyed and this new world will have no longer any mourning, crying, or pain. You know what you also won't get? <clears throat> you won't ever get a painkiller in heaven. Now, you won't need a prescription. There'll be no more country western songs about heartbreak. <laughs> Just amazing, right? Yeah, bad jobs or pickup trucks or, you know, tornadoes and, uh, what, trailer houses or whatever. There'll be no divorce court. There'll be no custody battles. There'll be no disability claims. There'll be no funerals. There'll be no bankruptcies. Brokenness will be over. There'll be no hospitals. There'll be no surgeries. You won't need any of this stuff because it's a new world. It's a completely new world. Verse 5 gives us kind of an overview, and this takes my breath away. It says, he who sits on the throne, that's Jesus says, behold, underline this, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these things are faithful and true. Now, when he says, I am making all things new, the Bible says this is beyond anything we can imagine. You can forget about John's Lynn on the Magin, okay? Forget about that. Jesus says from the throne, what I'm going to do in the future in the new heaven and new earth is literally going to blow your mind. I want you to write down, get a pen. I want you to write this scripture down because your imagination is not big enough for what God has in mind. I want you to write down 1 Corinthians 2.9. 1 Corinthians 2.9, because <clears throat> sometime this week, you're going to run into a brick wall and you need to come back to this and say, God is bigger than my problem. Here's 1 Corinthians 2.9. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. What's coming is beyond your imagination. Here's the principle. Jesus has a heavenly banquet planned that is beyond our imagination. Stop settling for the mud pies of this life. John describes what he's seen in human language. He's trying to describe a new heaven and a new earth. He's trying to use it. He's trying to use words to describe something that is almost indescribable. Um, it's trying to like to describe to someone who's never been there the Grand Canyon. How do you describe the Grand Canyon in words to someone who hasn't been there? How do you describe Niagara Falls? to someone who's never seen it. How do you use words to describe the birth of your first baby or your first grandbaby to someone who's never had that experience? How do you use words to describe the, how the love of Jesus has changed your life? Words are so limiting. They're essential, but words literally can't fully describe heaven because it's literally out of this world. Literally, out of this world. It's another universe. Whatever pleasure you're chasing down here on planet Earth, <clears throat> money, sex, power, prestige, the praise of people, family, health, whatever it is, John is telling you, you ain't seen nothing yet. And one of the reasons why Jesus gives us this picture of heaven is to keep us on track here. See, if you don't have a perspective of heaven, you know what you'll do? 
you'll try and get all the goodies you can from this life because you'll think that's all there is. I need more money. I need more sex. I need more power. I need more prestige. I need the praise of men. I need to go back and live my youth all over again, right? I've seen guys do that. That generally works out very disastrously because they think this is all I have. I remember talking to someone who said, I'm burning daylight. I got to live now. Well, your real life ain't here, right? Your real life is to come. And it's going to be far greater and far bigger and far larger than we can imagine. C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Weight of Glory, the book The Weight of Glory. It's really struck me. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because they cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Interesting thing here. Jesus wants your joy far more than you do. So stop settling for earth's promises. It's not that you shouldn't enjoy this life, but your life is not here. If this is all you've got, then you've got nothing. Because this place is what? Passing away. And you all are passing away too. So don't put your treasures here because the treasures here are going to burn up. And I'm going to leave them before they burn up, right? My body will give out and I'll be out of here. So just in case you think all this sounds to be good to be true, the last half of verse 5, Jesus himself says, John, write these down because these words are faithful and true. I myself, eternal God, have promised it, and I'm going to do exactly what I said I'm going to do. Verse 6, then Jesus said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Now, it is done is the same words, it is finished. So what God is saying is this new creation, the new heavens and the earth, it's done, it's built, it's completed. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the name of God, the eternal self-existent God, right? I am the beginning and the end. There is no one before God and there's no one after God. He alone dwells outside time. So he's saying, you want to know these promises I'm making you? They're going to happen because I'm God. And I live outside time and I have the infinite capacity to make that happen. And I've promised, and I'm a giving God, I'm going to give you of the water of life. How many of you are in the 8 o'clock service? Right? If you haven't, go to the 11 o'clock service. The water of life is freely given, life without cost, eternal life is a gift. Jesus is the living water. And Pastor Roger said this morning, you know, we have this God-sized hole in our heart and it seeks satisfaction. The problem is... We seek satisfaction in this world. And Jesus says, stop drinking of the cesspools of this life. I am the fountain of living water. I am the sparkling living water. Everything in this life will disappoint you. Have you noticed? Have you noticed that no matter what you chase after in this life, even when you get it, it doesn't satisfy your soul? You always want more. It's never enough. You're never content. 
reminds me of the dog chasing the car. The car stops. The dog goes, well, now what? Well, you're not supposed to stop. You're supposed to keep going, right? So you get what you want in this life, and what do you got? You're still thirsty. You're still hungry. It doesn't satisfy your soul. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul because you were made for eternity. By the way, this place is not your permanent residence, folks. You're just camping here, right? Don't get too used to the tent, right? Your dwelling place, your mansion, your home is coming. That's what we hunger for because we're not here very long. Verse 7, he who overcomes will inherit these things. The new heaven and the new earth, that's your home. And I will be his God and he will be my son. These overcomers are those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord to forgive their sins and reconcile them with God so they can live forever with Jesus in heaven. And they're going to inherit the kingdom and live with God forever and ever. And the treasures of heaven are reserved for those who trust Jesus. But in verse 8, he gives you a contrast. But those who haven't trusted Jesus, the cowardly, by the way, that means refusal of faith. It doesn't mean you're scared. It means I refuse to believe. That's what cowardly means. Refuse to believe in Jesus. The unbelieving, the abominable, murders, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, they're not going to be in heaven. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I always continually be amazed at the number of people I talk to who say, well, I'm good enough to get in heaven. And the truth of it is, if you're good enough to get in heaven, then heaven ain't heaven. Because heaven's perfect and you ain't. Right? If everybody thinks they should go to heaven because they're good enough to get in heaven, it ain't heaven, it's hell. Because there's no sin in heaven. That's why Jesus Christ came to forgive us our sins, to take our sins away so that we can be made perfect and go to heaven. So this list of sinful behaviors, by the way, doesn't indicate I just did this once or twice. This is a list of habitual practices. And these people who practice these, it indicates in the, in, the, in, the, in the Greek that they continually practice the sin without repentance or remorse. So it's a way of life. They have no remorse over it. They have no repentance over it. They have no conscience over it. What their behaviors are revealing is they don't belong to God. They don't want to belong to God. They love their sin. They have rejected the offer, Jesus' offer of reconciliation because they love their sin more than Jesus, and they have now behaved themselves into the lake of fire. So on the one hand, you have seven, actually most of the chapter is the glories of the new heaven and the new earth, and then at the end he says, by the way, the only way to get there is through Jesus, and people who practice this that refuse that, their destination is not the new heaven and the new earth. Okay, does that make sense so far? You with me? Here's the summary. Here's the key idea. The reality of heaven should shape our behavior on earth. God tells you about heaven, not so you can just think about it, but it should shape your priorities. It should shape your behavior. It should shape your choices. One of the things that concerns me greatly is Christians, especially affluent Christians in this culture, waste their life on trinkets. We waste our life making ourselves feel good here. By the way, I'm not saying you shouldn't feel good here. I'm not saying that. I mean, I love to hunt. I don't fish. I love to ski. There's a lot of things I like to do on the earth. God gave you all that to enjoy. But you don't spend your entire life doing that or working 18 hours a day, right? I mean, you can worship anything, right? Or being a couch potato or whatever, because this is not home. 
We should keep our eyes on heaven and live in the light of the fact that we're not here long. Number two, living together forever with God is the whole point of heaven. It's all about relationship, loving relationship. Point number three, Jesus has a heavenly banquet plan that is beyond our imagination. Stop settling for the mud pies of this life. Okay, Darren's going to come down and do uh, prayer and praise for us. Um, be thinking about heaven and ask God what he wants to do in your life from a priority standpoint, given the fact of the joys beyond compare that we have yet to come in the future. We'll try and finish up chapter 22 next week. I hope we can get that done. And then uh, Crystal has already ordered uh, our new books and Lord willing, we'll be starting Acts. Acts. Um, in March. Okay? Love you guys. Now that you know, do. <laughs>